0: Hey, I'm Cantor Julie Eugen-Green, and you are listening to Drinking and Drashing, Torah with a Twist. Today we will be discussing Parashat Shmini, which has some difficult passages in it, but we hope that you will stick with us and come away, having learned a few things about community and comfort.
1: Hey, again.
2: Hey, Amanda.
1: You know, I've been thinking a lot recently about a discussion that I had with executive producer Idan Valdman.
2: Oh, yeah? What was that?
1: Well, Idan seems to think that Chicago deep dish pizza is better than New York pizza.
2: See, Idan and I have also had this conversation. And while I have not had Chicago deep dish pizza in Chicago, my personal view is that, uh, Chicago deep dish pizza is really more of a casserole, like a pizza flavored casserole than it is a pizza. Uh, you know, and so I don't disregard it as a food. It's just, you know, not pizza.
1: Okay. But I think that there are a lot of great things about Chicago, just not necessarily it's pizza. I mean, look, you have the eye center in Chicago. You have The Bean in Chicago. And, I mean, I'm pretty sure Edan is from Chicago. And I think Idan and Agnes are moving to Chicago. And so I think that there's actually a lot of wisdom and greenness that could come from Chicago. Don't you agree?
2: Totally agree. You know, I, I think we've had a few guests from Chicago, but it's been a little while.
1: I think it's time to maybe bring out a fantastic guest from Chicago for this week's episode, Somebody who has a really unique connection to this week's portion. Who's that? Well, I think Yudan helped us out this week, but you've got to listen to find out. Let's go. our last portion, Gabe was super excited because it was his Bar Mitzvah portion. And I have always been excited and interested and intrigued by this week's portion by Parshat Shemini because there's a story in here that is a little challenging and I think foreshadows another dramatic challenging moment later on in the Torah, but we'll get there. Don't worry. Having said that, this portion in itself is tricky because it deals with a topic that we don't always like to talk about: death. And so for this week, we're going to focus in a little bit more on some mourning customs, some ways that we can deal with giving dignity to the dying, and also, to be honest, really exploring some of the things that might make us uncomfortable or help us prepare for doing real vote, which is, again, to give dignity to dying. Um, how we deal with that, with our words, with our actions, we'll explore a little bit more when it comes to Shmini, but we're really excited to have a guest today who can speak sensitively and brilliantly to this topic. Cantor Julie Eugen Green has served as Cantor of Oak Park Temple since 1997. She holds a degree of Masters of Sacred Music from the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion and was ordained as a cantor in 1994. In 2019, Cantor Eugen Green was awarded the Doctor of Music Honoris Clausa, in recognition of the 25 years since her ordination, Cantor Eugen Green has instituted dynamic programs of music and study, engaging learners of all ages. She is committed to fostering our congregation's relationships with Jewish communities around the world and has led several congregational tours of Israel and Eastern Europe. Cantor Eugen Green is a founding member of the West Suburban Hevra Kadisha, the Jewish Burial Society, whose members prepare the deceased for burial according to Jewish tradition. Kendra Green, we're so excited to welcome you to Drinking and Tour Toward the Twist. Welcome to the show.
0: Thanks. It's great to be here. I'm excited to be here with you guys, you young people.
1: <laughs> it's great to have you here, and I really appreciate that you lumped me in with the young people on this podcast because I'm pretty sure that I've got a decade's difference from them, but like, don't worry about it, listeners. We're definitely all the same age, and that is young. Speaking of being young and the same age, but also at the same time being 84 years old, how's it going, Gabe Snyder?
2: Hello, I am, in fact, an old soul. That's the nice way to say that, right?
1: Absolutely. And our executive producer, who I think would probably equal your ability to both be the old man yelling at kids to get off his lawn while being simultaneously the kids that's on the lawn, how's it going, Edon Waldman, executive producer?
3: going great it's really really exciting to be here
1: is it because there are no kids on your lawn
3: it's probably because i don't have a lawn for there to be kids on
1: Ooh, fancy well it's all about the stories we tell and how we tell it but we are going to get into a really interesting story and dramatic moment in the midst of a book about laws and finding out how those two things connect right now
2: Shemini opens with Aaron and his sons following Moses' instructions on how to offer a sacrifice to God on behalf of the people so as they may be forgiven. This includes goats and oxen and fat and livers and all of the fun things we've come to know and love and expect here in Leviticus. The ritual ends with Aaron blessing the people, Aaron and Moses going into the tent of meeting and blessing the people again when they return. Suddenly, the presence of God appears before the people and consumes the offering on the altar. The people are rightfully terrified and fall on their faces. Now, Aaron has two sons in particular who are extra eager priests. These two sons, Nadav and Avihu, make their own sacrifice, but they do it with a strange fire. Fire that is not to be used for this purpose. Nadav and Avihu are immediately consumed by God's fire for their transgression. In one of Moses' less empathetic moments, he quotes God, saying, This is what the Eternal meant by saying, Through those close to me, I show my holiness and earn glory before all. Aaron, however, is silent. Moses instructs Aaron and his sons not to mourn for their sons and brothers, but assures them that the rest of the Israelites will do so, and they do, bewailing the fallen sons of their priest. Aaron gets some more instructions directly from God. Well, in the tent of meeting, Aaron and his sons are to drink no wine or other intoxicant in order to distinguish between the sacred and the profane. They are also instructed to teach the Israelites all of the laws that God gave to Moses. Next, Moses instructs Aaron and family to eat the leftovers from the earlier sacrifices. There's some brief confusion regarding a goat, but that gets resolved relatively quickly. Then we get some of the laws of kashrut, telling us what we are and are not supposed to eat. First up, land animals. The animal must have split hooves and chew its cud. From the sea, anything with fins and scales is okay, but anything else is not. Of the sky, rule of thumb, don't eat carnivorous birds. Also, no bats. For swarming things like bugs, you can eat locusts, crickets, and grasshoppers. So that's cool, I guess. And that's Parashat Shemini.
0: Love it. <laughs> I love Leviticus. Um, my bat mitzvah Torah portion was mitzvah and um, another really great one. And it was Shabbat HaGadol also. And about 10 days before my bat mitzvah, I came down with the red measles. So I wasn't contagious anymore, but I was still covered with the measles. Kids don't get the measles anymore. Now there's a vaccine. This was a long time ago. That's how old I am. And, um, so my whole tour portion was about, you know, sarat and leprosy and skin diseases. And there I'm up on the bema covered in the measles. And it's, it's a good story now. That's what I have to say about that.
2: Wow. There is something incredibly poetic about that. And also like, (laughs) ironic in a very not fun way yeah <laughs> uh, wow as a as a fellow uh shabbat hagadol b'nai mitzvah child um i i very much uh resonate with the not so fun torah portions though i have to say one of the best haftarah portions but that's not what we're here to talk about today we're talking about parashat shemini so with that let's get to it mm-hmm.
1: I'm really thrilled that you're here with us today. And because we've talked a little bit about Shemini before and we've talked about death and we've talked about the story, but we haven't necessarily always talked about the burial procedures that follow this story. And while we have talked about death in, in prior episodes and we've talked about, you know, potential hyphicodicea, can you, for listeners who this is their first episode, Explain exactly what is a Hever Kadisha and, and what is it that you do? What is this burial according to Jewish tradition that, that you spoke about?
0: The Hevrakadisha Kadisha is of people who come together. It means holy society. Hevra, Chavurah comes from the Hebrew word, haver, which means friend. Um, Kadisha um, is holy. Um, so a Hever Kadisha is a group of people that come together. To prepare the deceased for burial, the mate or the meta. We were very, very careful with our language. We we do not refer to the deceased as the body. The deceased is the mate or the meta, or we or we refer to them by their Hebrew name if they had one, by their English name, if they don't have a Hebrew name. And in our chavra, we always have two main tenets that are always at the forefront of our consciousness when we are, for lack of a better word, performing tahara, performing the ritual of tahara. And those are to honor the deceased and to comfort the family. Those two things are always at the forefront of our mind. So when we are going through all of the various steps in the ritual of tahara, We remind ourselves that as long as our kavanah, our intent is in the right place to honor the deceased and to comfort the family, those are always what we're coming back to, that we really can't do it wrong. And that is something that was extremely important when we were being trained. Um, We trained for a full year with the Progressive Heber Kedisha, which is a consortium of five um, communities Reform, Reconstructionist, and Conservative in the Chicago area. And they came together to train our Hevra for a full year before we sort of launched independently on our own. So in the Oak Park River Forest area in the west suburbs of Chicago, we are right now the only non-Orthodox Hevra Kadisha. And I'm, I'm really, I'm proud that we're around. It started with... Um, I would say about 14 years ago, a member of our chevra, she's retired now, but she is um, she was a columnist for the Chicago Tribune, and she um, wrote an article on the a column on the progressive chevrakadisha. I grew up in a very observant home in Minneapolis, and I had never heard of a chevrakadisha. I had no idea what it was all through my time in seminary, we never talked about it. We never talked about rituals of death and dying. It was not something that I, that I was familiar with until I read Barbara's column. Her name is Barbara Brotman and she isn't a, a member of our Hevra. She wasn't back then, but anyway, she, she wrote a column um, on the Progressive of Hevra Kadisha and, and their work. And, and I, as I read it, I was really struck by thinking about my parents, who um, may they rest in peace. Um, both of my parents have been have been gone for a while now, and I, when I read the column, I thought somebody did this for my parents, and I will never know who they are because when you're a member of a chevra, if you participate um, in a tahara, you remain anonymous to the family, so that there is no obligation to. Express gratitude, anything like that. So, so the members of the chaver remain anonymous, and so I realized, and I spoke with my sister about this, that somebody took care of our parents in in those, you know, few days between their dying and between and and their burial. There were things that were going on, things were happening, but we don't talk about that, and. But I know now that somebody took care of them, somebody had their hands on them, somebody was saying prayers over them, somebody was was sitting with them and reciting psalms. And I felt I, I this bone-deep gratitude, even all of these years later, to these people. And I when I when I read Barbara's column, I thought I would like to do that. I would like to, to be involved in that work. And so I reached out to the rabbi at the time, Rabbi Robin Damsky, who's the rabbi at the conservative synagogue right across the street, right across Harlem Avenue in River Forest and just a few blocks down. And she and I were friends. She's not the rabbi there any longer, but she and I were buddies and, um, and said, would you like to do this with me, our two congregations together? And she said, Absolutely. Yes, let's do it. And so that's how the Hebra came to be. And so we are still the, the West Suburban Hebra Kedisha is still a combination of Oak Park Temple, Reform Congregation, and West Suburban Temple, Conservative Shul across the street. And we still work together. And so I've learned about, we've, we've learned and we've taught our communities about these hours in between death, and burial that we do not discuss. We don't talk about it. And there's a lot that goes on in those hours, in those in those times. And I think I mentioned to you in an email when we were discussing um, the recording today about how the words in Shmini by Yidomah Haron, Aaron was silent when his when his sons die in front of him. It's of course not the same kind of silence that we have around this period of time but it still resonates with me as a similar sort of silence that these are these are hours that we don't talk about when someone dies we think immediately of the funeral and a eulogy and honoring them in that way and the Hever Kadisha deals with those um, we work in those hours where people do not talk about it what is happening in terms of preparing the meitra, for, Meta for burial. And that's really where the Chavra Kadisha comes in.
2: I'm so curious, uh, you know, you being a cantor who's been in the field for so many years and uh, as a uh, cantorial student who will uh, enter the field in, you know, a little over a year, I'm curious as to the intersection or maybe the the difference between the work of a member of the Chavra Kadisha and the work of a cantor, where you see those roles uh, overlapping, where you see them diverging. You know, it, you mentioned a funeral. You mentioned a memorial service where people eulogize the deceased, where uh, there are prayers and, and public expressions of of both praise and mourning. Um, and also, there's this aspect of like a very private, um, almost secret you know, as you said, silent ritual. So I'm I'm curious, both as a cantor, um, and as a member of a chevrut kedisha, w- where you see those kind of roles, those identities, how you put them into comparison.
0: It's a really interesting question because when way back when, in when I was in seminary and envisioning my role as a cantor and, see, and thinking about what might be in front of me. And, you know, I'm, I'm retiring in a few months. And so looking back on my over three decades as a cantor, I never, ever, as a young cantor, would have imagined that the most mean, I can say this absolutely clearly with, without any hesitation at all, the most meaningful thing I've done in my cantorate is to be a member of the Hebraic no question in my And I could I could never have imagined such a thing when I was a young cantor, absolutely not. So it, it's it's you never know what is going to come your way or what's going to, you know, what opportunities or what things what 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 um, areas of study might you know tap you on the shoulder and say. This is this is for you, you know, kind of thing. I just I I couldn't have imagined it. In terms of the the intersection of the cantorit and um, the Chaver Kedisha, that's also an interest that that's very very interesting to me because I truthfully I I don't really see so much how they intersect. I have been a rosh at um, at a tahara when tahara is performed, one of the members. Of the chaver always serves as rosh or the or the head of the ritual and is sort of the one who is deciding where all of the other team members you know what their jobs are going to be for the tahara. So I have served as rosh at a, at taharot that have been completely silent except for we say a prayer at the beginning and at the very end a prayer of mechila of forgiveness asking for forgiveness of the mate or the Meta in case we do anything that may inadvertently cause indignity. or we ask at the beginning for forgiveness, we ask at the end um, for forgiveness as well. Aside from that and birkat Kohanim and maybe a osa Shalom a prayer for peace when we place the, the cover on the casket, the Tahara is done almost almost entirely in silence unless somebody is saying, can you please hand me you know a towel? Can you please hand me a sheet? And I've been a Roche, a Taha Rot, where there's very quiet speaking going on, where I'm saying we're, where I'm directing the team members. We're going to do this now, I'll be queuing people. There have been um, Taharot where I've participated, where we've all been singing a nigun during parts of the Tahara. Um, there was a Tahara that, where I was the Roche, this was a few years ago, of a young man who was a composer and an amazing musician. And during the entire Tahara, we were singing to him compositions that, that he had written for our community. And we, were, and we sort of felt like we were um, serenading him. And... So music can come in in all different kinds of ways. It, it's, and in, in surprising ways that, that I wouldn't have anticipated. So, but always in, you know, really quiet contemplative ways. One thing that, that we always do is at the end of the Tahara, when the major the thai has been placed in the casket, and the cover has been placed and we were, we've we removed all of our PPE. There's a lot of PPE that's worn, gloves and masks and face shields and gowns and so forth. We, the members of the team will go into a side room in the funeral home and we will, it's not like we say, all right, have a good night, <laughs> safe drive home. We don't do it. We don't do that because we need to, I feel that it's important that we gather together and we and we check in with one another and we see how we're doing. So I always bring the samima, a spice box from a habdala set, and I also always bring chocolate. And we sit together in a side room and we share chocolate and we pass around the the sweet spices and we take a moment and share how we how we are doing. And oftentimes it's at that moment where our nigun will come into play. It's not something ever that's planned, but it's it's often happened that a melody in that moment is is appropriate.
1: I really appreciate both the question Gave and also the answer Julie. I know that before Gave asked, my thought was, oh, I wonder if there's any music that goes through her mind when she's doing this. You know, if there's something that's a message. Um, you know, for me, I know a lot of the time when I'm doing things that I find to be really holy, or if I find um challenging, Alana Arians Kenya Hiratstone like runs through my mind constantly as as a comfort, and and so I really appreciate that you shared some of those beautiful moments and how music plays a part in those moments. In our portion, you know, when when we're looking at chapter ten in the earliest parts you know it's really interesting to me because Moses calls his nephews you know the ones who who have just lost you know their their family members right their their cousins and says like take them to a place outside the camp and then these mourners are ordered how they should mourn and how they shouldn't mourn because they're leaders in the community and inherently they need to set an example and so You have a really interesting space in this Hever Kadisha as not only really like somebody who is deeply acquainted with the Jewish tradition, but also someone who is very deeply acquainted with the Jewish community. And as a leader in the community, I find or I would assume that at times, you know the people who have passed and you are also in mourning. I'm curious how you balance those two things, how you are able to maintain a strong leadership and also embrace a, a personal mourning in, in this process. I've been
0: I've been thinking a lot about um, about the words because these come up a, a great deal in Shmini and they come up a, a great deal just you know throughout Vayikra, throughout the book of Leviticus the words tahara and, and tuma or tame and what it means to be you know, it's usually translated as pure, impurity and impure. And during uh, Tahara, the centerpiece, there are three main, main parts of, of a Tahara. There's Rehitsa, which is um, a gentle washing of the major, the Meitra. And it's not for cleanliness, it's just, it's uh, symbolic, but it involves water. And then the second part of the ritual is actually tahara, which is the pouring of water, which is, you know, sort of hearkening back to a mikvah. Um, and and we say tahor hu or tahora he, he is pure, he is pure, he is pure, while the water is being poured. And then there's Halbashah, which is dressing in tahrihim, dressing in, in shrouds. And I've been thinking lately. And I think I want to do more of a study on this, on the words Tameh and Tahor. What does it mean to be impure? What does it mean to be pure? And that's always sort of, I've sat sort of in an uncomfortable place. And a lot of being Jewish is being uncomfortable, right? Like it's, you know, we don't get many answers in Judaism. We have a lot of questions. Lots of times we're uncomfortable. And so in situations like what you're asking, Amanda, How do I balance out if I'm mourning and I'm a leader in the community and have to sort of help other people through their mourning? There are so many layers, I think, to that question, because something that I've been pondering lately is the idea of Tuma or Tame, not necessarily meaning just impurity, but meaning vulnerable. And to be in a state of tuma, to be tame means not necessarily unclean or impure, but to be vulnerable, to be to be open, to have to sort of have your boundaries be open. And a state of tahara or tahor means to be to examine the idea of meaning, maybe that meaning whole. That there's a boundary around you, that you that all of your parts are there, that you're that you're whole. So I think that for me as a leader in the community, that I am Tame. My boundaries, if I am mourning along with my community, my boundaries are open. I am vulnerable along with the community. And allowing myself to be vulnerable and that it's okay to be vulnerable. That the state of Tumar Tame is not necessarily a bad place to be. It's okay to be vulnerable, to have your boundaries be open, if that makes sense. And that together as a community, we are walking towards ideally a place of Tehorah. Tahara of purity, of wholeness, along with the person who has died. Um, that's sort of a place to, to look for. So that as a, as a leader in the community, if I am also mourning, that I'm in a place of, of Tuma, that I'm in a place also of where my, where I am vulnerable along with the mourners. And making my peace with that, I guess. And it's not always easy to do that.
2: It occurs to me that in our Torah portion, uh, that Aaron and Moses are both leaders of the community, and they have to remain leaders of the community, even though they're both in mourning in very different ways. Um, Aaron, you know, uh, is silent, as we've said. Uh, Moses, the text doesn't really give us a lot of grieving from Moses, despite uh, Nadav and Avihu being his nephews. But we do hear that the entire community of Israel is mourning the loss uh, of these two priests. Uh, and we hear that Aaron is silent uh, and that Aaron and sons are forbidden from uh, mourning. And I, I'm so curious as to, you know, h- how we can demand that. Of Our leaders, Um, you know, that's that's such a difficult thing to demand. You're not allowed to mourn the people will mourn for you. But your your sons, you're not allowed to mourn them. Um, And I'm curious if that's, you know, because their death was brought on by sin, or because you know, they had a job to do, they had to lead the community. And pretty immediately, God goes into some rules about how they're going to do that job about you're not allowed to drink wine or another intoxicant when uh, you go into the tent of meeting. And that's not a rule for mourning. that's a rule for all time. Um, So I'm interested in that how we can, you know, hold both our own emotions and this mantle of leadership where, you know, the people are going to mourn on our behalf or perhaps on their own accord um but we we don't participate in that that's that's for them to do uh it, that's that's a really difficult pill to swallow um I'm wondering you know really specifically w- with this Torah portion how you react to these you know kind of levels of mourning that Aaron is silent that the people mourn on behalf of Aaron that Moses, Seems not too compassionate. Where are we uh, in this Torah portion? What's your reaction?
0: I mean, I can't square it. There, there are so many moments in the Torah that that you, that you can't square. You, you know, you have to hold these. You have to. I, I find that I, I have to when I am capable of holding two completely opposing things in tandem. You know and and make and again making my peace with that. I think a, a lot of Torah study is just accepting the fact that there are verses in the Torah that we will not be able to square, that will, that are never we're never going to be able to sit in comfort with. You know, I, I, I suppose I could find some comfort, some nechemta, And when Moses says to Aaron, this is how God shows who he is closest to or it's, I am not getting it completely right but is Moses saying that you're being treated this way your loss would only have happened with somebody that God is is close to. There's pretty cold comfort in that um, there's that's about how <laughs> I don't know if I can take much more comfort from it than than just saying it that this is right. So I I mean, I can't, I can't square it. If, if somebody as a leader of the community, we, I think our communities, when they see us as their leaders, when they see us mourning, I think that that's comforting. We, there are times where as leaders, we have to be the ones in the room who are not falling apart. If everybody else is falling apart, we have to be the ones kind of holding, you know, being that space where people can fall apart. And then when we come home, that's when we can fall apart. And, and that's when we can be tame, tum- I guess. We can be, we can be spiritually vulnerable. But there are times where our community needs us to be that rock that is not falling apart. And I've and I've been that many times, and then I've come home, and in the safety of my home, I can let those boundaries fall away and and fall apart. But to to be told you cannot mourn because you are a a leader in the community, there's no way that I can make that palatable, (laughs) right? Or, Or okay. And there are moments... There are so many interesting moments of silence in the Torah. You know, I think about the Akedah when Abraham almost slaughters his son, and then in the Torah, Isaac and Abraham never speak again. You know, they're, they're what what's up with that? <laughs> you know, they is there's their relationship severed because of what happened. We have to we have to come up with those with uh, with what we think that means on our own.
1: So I'm going to give a hot take. And I recognize that for people who say this, that it might be a hot take and I'm okay if you do at me because you can teach me why I'm wrong. Um, I really struggle with Moses's message during this time, but that's not what I actually think my hot take is. Um, There are two things that tend to be said to people who have lost uh, members of, of their community um. Either people say, Zikrona, zikrono, zikronam may his, her, their memory be for a blessing, which I'm okay with. I love, right? Like totally thoughtful. There's another sentence that is said often when someone dies that is, Baruch dayan um, Blessed is the true judge. And I struggle with that message because in a moment of heartbreak, and by the way, I understand and for people that don't know, the Mourner's Cottage that many of us read during services is all about praising God. But in this moment, which is the thing you say when you hear the news, you know, it's supposed to be a reflexive statement. You're basically saying, well, everything happens for a reason and God's the only person or God's the only entity that knows what that reason is. And so I think I one of the things I'm really appreciative about, Julie, is how thoughtful your, your messaging around death and mourning and Hebra Kadisha and Tahara and to May have been. And so if you had one message that you wanted our listeners to know coming out of this, um, Especially people like me, by the way, who used to be afraid of going into cemeteries and of death. You know, what might that message be? What wisdom might you have to offer our listeners in, in our drinking and dashing community that might sit better with them than Baruch ha Ha'emetz?
0: I'm with you there. I'm with you there. I've never been able to subscribe to the everything happens for a reason. Only God understands, and we're not meant to understand. And I, I know that, that many people find a lot of comfort in those kinds of, you know, there's, there's no way for, for us to understand the grand plan. It's not so much a Jewish thing, that's just a Julie thing, that I, I believe the world is random, and things happen, and sometimes there isn't a reason. And I also go back to something I said earlier in our conversation, that I believe that it's possible to hold two things in our mind that are completely opposites that we can hold them in our mind in tandem. That God can be a comfort to us and God can also, the things that happen in the world that God created can also cause us such pain that these things can happen at the same time in tandem. Um, And so... I guess something that I, I would ask people to, uh, to ponder is that in moments of pain and uncertainty and confusion, that if you live long enough, you're going to experience it, that you lean on your community. Wherever your community is, you lean on your community for support. And that is... What I have found in my synagogue community, in the Chaver Kadisha, that when I am in moments of deep, deep pain and deep, deep confusion, that I know that I have a community that I can lean on. They're not going to be pro- able to provide me with answers. Why did this happen to me? I'm not going to be able to find that answer. But... I can have a community to lean on me, to lean on, to provide comfort. Um, But that comfort doesn't mean an answer. Comfort just means I am here for you. I will be there for you. I will be there to take care of your loved one in their most vulnerable moments. And that's just knowing that that is there, provides comfort, not an answer. But it provides comfort. And sometimes that's enough.
2: We recognize that the topic of this episode um is not an easy one, and we recognize that like this is a heavy thing. So we hope that we can insert a little bit of joy. Uh, and a little bit of silliness into the episode with our Midrashic mixology segment. In Leviticus chapter 10, verse 9, God says to Aaron, Yain vshechar al do not drink wine or any other intoxicant when entering the tent of meeting. Well, we're not doing that today, so let's make a drink. Start off with two quarters of lime. Yes, this makes half, just go with me here. Those get muddled in a shaker with a handful of mint leaves. You can make whatever connection you want between crushing up two pieces of fruit with Nadav and just saying. For Aaron's silence, two ounces of a citrus vodka. For an alcohol-free version, use your favorite citrus seltzer. Just be sure to stir instead of shake Add in one ounce of cranberry juice, fiery red, for that strange fire. Finally, one ounce of triple sec, or if you're feeling extra red or alcohol-free, one ounce of grenadine. Add ice and stir if you used the seltzer, shake if you didn't, and strain into a martini glass. Garnish with a lime wedge. There are no fins or scales on this one, just fun, fruity flavors for what's honestly kind of a bitter portion. L'chaim.
0: Oh, my gosh, that sounds so good. <laughs> I don't think I have any limes, though. I really want to try that. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, it seems like a really good excuse to go to the supermarket, pick up some limes. Uh, yeah, it's it's a good one. It's, you know, kind of a basically a Cosmo, but like a little bit of a twist with the muddled limes, um, which will help express some of those oils, do something a little bit different. So I hope that uh, that drink brings a little bit of comfort and joy.
0: It sounds really good.
1: This episode has been truly incredible in, in terms of just, I would say, depth and breadth when it comes to this particular subject, and, and also how challenging it can be to mourn as a Jewish leader, um, as well as bring the community together to do the holy work of a Heber and so uh, I'm sad to say that we've made it to thank yous and closing cues, but I think this last question is also going to be an important one for all of us to be able to feel like we might be able to apply what we've learned today uh, from Julie to maybe our, our real lives. And so Julie, Gabe, Idan, Shmini is an intense Parsha, which helps us strike the balance between a challenging death for the community, and, and I would also say its leaders, while also recognizing that we need to maintain some sense of stability for that community. Uh, and, and in our portion, we do that with dietary laws and purity laws, all of which is to say that the morning is just not one size fits all. And so the question on the table today is how might we be able to engage in mourning in a healthy way? Julie, we'll start with you.
0: Oh gosh. In a healthy way to be able to face your pain, honestly. And in order to do that, I think the healthiest way to do that is to, as I mentioned before, to lean on your community. That warning doesn't have to be silent, doesn't have to be alone. If no one going through life is going to escape pain and grief, this is universal we all at some point in our life are going to be devastated by something and we need one another and to engage with it in a healthy way is to understand to come to an understanding that we're not alone
1: i really appreciate that i know that uh, some of my most meaningful moments in time in, in times of loss have been when i've been surrounded by friends and, and loved ones and been able to reach out and be honest about what's going on. Gabe, what say you, my friend?
2: Um, Well, Amanda, you had a hot take earlier, so I feel like it's only fair that I have one as well. My hot take is that Aaron dealt with his grief in exactly the wrong way. Sometimes we're stunned silent, and we don't have the words to say what we want to say. And yet, I think the healthiest way to get through those times is to talk, Uh, whether that's with uh, a friend or a family member or a clergy person or a therapist. uh, We need to talk. We need to talk about our feelings. We need to talk uh, about that loss. We can't bottle up our feelings. We can't hold it in. Um, We have to let it out. So my answer is talk about it.
1: I really, really appreciate that, Gabe, Uh, especially as somebody who tends to be really strong and silent in his feelings. I would be fascinated to see how that might come out in terms of, you know, when you rely on your own community for help in these moments. Ijan, I always love your wisdom in these moments because I feel like you speak to like what people, how people can really live this in, in their lives. And so I'm curious, what this looks like for you in terms of finding ways to mourn in a healthy way or in a way that might work for for you or for others that might be looking for a way to mourn.
3: I don't know if I have any like extremely wise words to to say here, but I, I, I want to say first off that uh, everything Julia said throughout the conversation, throughout this episode is really, I don't know, you know, I think a lot of people don't know how this stuff works in the, in the in the Jewish culture. And I think it's so fascinating and it's, it's so special. And um, something, something my mom says, says a lot is uh, that the Jews do death, right. Is the fact of it. And so um, it's really, uh, really meaningful for me to be able to like really hear from, I guess, like the inside of like kind of how, how, the, how that, you know, how we do that. And then I, I, I really, something, something that, that I was thinking about is, in my in my work at, at Westchester Reform temple at WRT I I've worked I've been present for a number of funeral services oddly enough I've not I've never actually been to a funeral myself outside of that um it, it's something that's just like I has I, never lined up I've never been able to actually attend one uh, for, a, for a family member and so being to being present for the funeral services of people I don't know has been a really odd experience. Um, but it's something I've, you know, I've really seen to be consistent throughout all of them is, um, a lot of what both Julian Gabe were saying about, you know, you need to lean on your community. You're not alone in this. And being able to talk out, um, you know, your feelings in those times really is important. It really, really helps. And if you just, if you sit alone and don't talk about it to anybody, you know, what, what, what's going to happen? You know, it's, it's not, we, we need to be open and talk about who they were, what they did, how, how special they were um, to you, to others, and recognize, you know, how they lived their life.
1: I really appreciate that, uh, especially because I think that I love hearing stories about people and the influences that they had, not only on, on my community's lives, but also in the world. I want to go in a different direction just because I, I want to give a shout out to you. Something that I do and also Gabe, I think that you do is that it, it's also okay for you to find a job for yourself to do if you're not ready to face your feelings yet. Uh, if you're a person who needs a job, you know, if you're a person who needs to be able to focus on doing something so that you can figure all this out in, in the, you know, your own time, because that's something you have control over, then... That's okay. Um, I'm a person that needs a job. You know, I'm a person that needs to be able to welcome the people that are coming into the temple. I'm a person that needs to make sure that the the bowls for washing your hands when you're done, you know, with the the coming back from the cemetery, like is ready. Uh, I need a job, you know, and then when I'm ready, after I've done all the jobs and after everybody else is taken care of, then I'll I'll feel my feelings. And so I just want to shout that out, too, that each of us is different. As I said before, mourning is not one size fit all. Um, but my hope is that in listening to this episode, people are realizing that th- there are many options for you. And many of them exist in your community that you're able to talk or you're able to just be with somebody. Uh, you know, a funeral ceremony is levia—that that that you're being accompanied. And so the idea is that you're, you're not alone. And as Idan was talking about before, I think sometimes just being in conversation where you're able to share these stories is important. And so, uh, Cantor, Julie yugen Green, uh, if people want to continue these conversations with you and, and find out a little bit more about this process and and you know these this beautiful tradition, how can they best find or follow you?
0: The best way to find me is through email. I, I have no social media presence of any kind so there's no place to follow me
1: so yeah that's the best way is
0: through email
1: great we'll make sure to include your email in the show notes um wonderful we are really so appreciative that you were able to come onto the show and so thank you so much for your thoughtful answers and and just beautiful way of explaining this liminal space between life and death and how we might play a part in it beautifully both as leaders in the Jewish community but also as people who step up to be leaders in the Jewish community in, in a way that's often overlooked or, or even unseen. Thank you, Gabe, for creating an excellent rundown and an unnamed drink to be named later. You didn't think we noticed, but we did. Thank you, Idan, uh, as always, for A, for introducing us to this incredible guest, uh, and also B, just for always being on the team and making sure that we keep it together and I don't distract people by talking about my nieces or my family or McDonald's. And thank you so much to our editors for making us sound brilliant and to our listeners for helping us feel like we are making connections and community across the globe. We are so lucky to have been on this journey with all of you. May all of your days be for blessings and may the memories of all your loved ones stay with you and accompany you. Our conclusion's coming up soon, so stay tuned. Hey Amanda. Yes, Cape.
2: This was an incredibly interesting, intense, but really interesting episode. Oh so. I think as Julie said, this isn't a part of Judaism and Jewish ritual and tradition that we talk about that often. this is something that kind of happens in the shadows. Uh, it's it's more of a background sort of deal and to really bring it to the forefront to spend time really looking at analyzing, thinking about talking about uh, this ritual uh, you know and this tradition, that of the Hevraadisha it's it's really enlightening to uh, to see it.
1: I think that's true. I think that generally we don't always speak a ton about what the Katisha does, although there are episodes that we'll put in the show notes, to be fair, that also have related to this topic because we have talked about it before. I do think that one of the things that we talked about differently in this episode, especially with Julie, was this idea of mourning as leaders or when you're trying to set an example for the community that you're mourning with. I think that's happening more and more these days, you know, as we're facing a world that is volatile and uncertain um, and complicated, and sometimes just completely averse to, to the things that we know and hold dear, we have to mourn and act in a way that allows our communities to keep going, even through really hard times. And sometimes we have the ability to stop and, and make space, and, and that's important. And sometimes we have a need to be able to move to the next simcha that, or celebration or the next tragedy in order to, you know, offer comfort. And so I think that all of this was a, a different way of looking at what can Jewish leadership look like, um, even when it might exist behind the scenes.
2: You know, one of the things you said in the episode was that you really uh, are not a fan of the uh, traditional saying of Baruch Dayan HaEmet. Uh, when somebody's in mourning. Uh, and, you know, another one that I actually find a lot of meaning in for myself is, Hamakom etchem. Um, meaning, uh, you know, may the presence, may the place, may God comfort you. And the full sentences, uh, may you be comforted. In, among the mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. Um, and I think that really encompasses what we've talked about here today, that we need community, that we need our tradition, that we need our people, uh, that not only does God comfort us, but that place within that community comforts us, that we find comfort in our communities, in our groups, in our own chevras.
1: I think also that sometimes reminding ourselves that not everybody always speaks the same language and for people who've been listening there's been a lot of hebrew terms that we've used today we'll make sure that each of them are transliterated and also translated in our show notes because it's not every day that people just listen to a whole ton of hebrew phrases and a lot of these might be new to you
2: absolutely we always want to make sure that Uh, were accessible to a wide range of experiences and, uh, you know, levels of familiarity with Hebrew terms, with Jewish tradition, we would never want to be something we say to be a barrier to entry. Uh, We hope that this podcast has been and continues to be something that allows people to come in is a uh, kind of, you know, Uh, is a path into Judaism uh, or a path into certain traditions or certain ideas that they haven't heard before. Uh, We would never want to create that stumbling block.
1: So that end, we hope that each of you might engage with this uh, difficult topic in, in a way that works best for you, whether that's snippets at a time or even just trying to listen to a bit of our opening and closing. Because look, death is hard to talk about, but it's up to us to also try to grapple with the things that are hard and sometimes the best way to do that is by really reminding ourselves that it's always important to toast to all of life even the end of it so and we wish you all a wonderful wonderful week and of course we raise our glasses to you and say l'chaim
2: l'chaim
0: I'm Cantor Julie Eugen Green, and you are listening to Drinking and Drashing, Torah with a Twist. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope that all of your sangrias will be fruity and delicious.